0: First lesson is from Job 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. The word of the Lord.
1: Our second lesson is from Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 to chapter 2 verse 7. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: If you are able, would you stand with me, please, as we pray? Heavenly Father, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we give you thanks for the invitation into this holy place and time. We give you thanks for the invitation to turn our focus upon you. We give you thanks for your promise always to be with us, to be among us. And as we continue this morning, may we do so in a posture where our focus remains upon you, our eyes are only on you, and our ears hear only your words. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we're taking a brief break from our series on John's Gospel, and we turn instead to our lectionary readings for today. And what a surprise those readings are. I don't know how they landed with you, but they certainly did not sound like typical Thanksgiving Sunday fare. Job never is, frankly. Um, Yet, having spent some time with them over the last little while, the last few weeks, I've come to be convinced that taken together our readings have something deep to teach us about thanksgiving. Now, each of these readings contains enough insight, wisdom, and surprises to be a sermon on its own, and, and I had to cut out so much. There's so much there that begged to be addressed, and I couldn't for the sake of time. Forty-five minutes should do us, I think. So our sermon this morning has to have broader brushstrokes in order to focus on the shared theme on this Thanksgiving Sunday. Our reading from the book of Job begins as a litany of grievances, and what a long list it is. The weaponized accusations of his comforter Bildad, as well as the other two comforters, as Job says, break me in pieces. The punishing hand of God that deals out blow after blow on all facets of Job's existence. Job cries out, but there's no answer. He calls for help, but there's no justice. Now, in past sermons, we have talked about the Spirit of God as the agent of reconciliation, working relentlessly to reconcile us to God and with one another. But here, Job experiences God as an agent of alienation instead, alienation from family, from friends, even from his servants. And Job sees this as God's work. He's a man broken, humiliated, betrayed, and alone. Yes, the hand of God has touched him, and as far as he can tell, it wasn't a good thing. Much like the Psalms of Lament, about which we've taught in the past, Job gives voice to his grievance with God. He goes through the whole list. He tells God, or at least Bildad, with the the confidence that God's listening in, exactly what he thinks is wrong with the scenario with his life as he's experiencing it, maybe even what's wrong with God himself. Then, he makes an abrupt turn, and without waiting for or expecting any change, he speaks of the hope of divine redemption, and, if I read it right, resurrection, and the face-to-face intimate encounter with the living God. In our Colossians reading, Paul, as he often does, has an entirely different take on things, and his statement on suffering is difficult to say the very least. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now perspectives and opinions have varied dramatically through the centuries, leading on the one hand to the extreme position of people like the flagellants and people who are willing to be nailed onto crosses physically, somehow believing that this completed the sacrificial suffering of Jesus in some mysterious way. On the other extreme hand is the inclination to ignore or radically reinterpret what Paul says in an effort to defend the full sufficiency of the redemptive suffering of Jesus on the cross. And while certainly my inclination is more towards the latter than the former, I'm not really comfortable with either extreme. It is clear in places like Hebrews chapter 10 that the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient, one time and for all of us. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And there are other passages of Scripture that point to the same conviction, including Paul himself in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned, all are redeemed through Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, anyone in Christ is a new creation. God reconciles the whole world to himself through Jesus. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we can be pretty confident about the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus for our redemption. So what then is Paul talking about? Filling up what is lacking... In the suffering of Jesus. Now, this is by no means intended to be a full or complete answer, but it's one one part of an answer, I believe. Because one thing that was lacking is that not many people saw Jesus suffering on the cross. It was just another act of imperial brutality in an unremarkable backwater of an otherwise bustling empire. By imperial standards, not many people saw it, and it certainly didn't make the news. But when the martyrs stood in the amphitheaters and sang praises to God as their blood flowed into the sand, the crowd of onlookers had never seen what redemptive suffering looked like until that moment. When the plague swept through the cities of the empire and those with the means fled the city, yet the Christians chose to care for the sick and dying, sometimes dying themselves, the residents had never seen redemptive suffering. Until then, when Paul and Silas were beaten, imprisoned, and shackled for disrupting the religio-economic order of things in Philippi, and they sang songs of praise at midnight, the jailer had never seen redemptive suffering until that moment. These These acts of suffering functioned as witnesses to the redemptive suffering of Jesus on the cross. In fact, the word martyr means witness. Certainly, it's a different kind of witness than what we're familiar with in our world. So what does this mean in our lives today? On the one hand, we have Job suffering mightily in all facets of his existence and not knowing why, other than that God is somehow responsible. On the other hand, we have Paul rejoicing in his suffering for the sake of others, convinced that his suffering is part of his calling and somehow participates in God's redemptive work in the world. Job, taking the long view into the future, declares his trust in God in spite of his suffering. Elsewhere in chapter 13, he famously says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Like a spiritual bulldog, Job was gloriously defiant, convinced that it was God himself who was afflicting him, stripped of everything but his life, and not only by a thread or the skin of his teeth, as he said. Job grimly held on and declared to God, You can't make me stop trusting you. Such a faith awes me. It also frightens me. Instinctively, a part of me aspires to such a faith. Yet I know there's only one way to get there, and the path is terrifying. Job's thanksgiving wasn't with lofty words or joyful songs. Rather, in the face of indescribable loss and pain, Job grimly refused to let go, refused to curse God and die, as his wife advised. I know that some of you resonate with Job at least a little bit. I know that some of you resonate with him a lot. But you're not sure that you're as much of a bulldog as Job. You're not sure you can hold on like he did. Well, my instinct is that neither, neither did Job. Now, it's not explicit anywhere in the story, so I speak with no spiritual authority other than a hunch about human nature and the rhythms of spiritual growth. But I suspect even Job was a little bit surprised every time he refused to curse God and die. I suspect that temptation was always with him. Yet whenever things were at their worst, the old spiritual habit surfaced, and rather than giving up, He again declared his faith, his trust in God. I know that my Redeemer lives. I shall see God. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. While Job's thanksgiving was a grim refusal to give up in spite of his suffering, Paul's thanksgiving was a euphoric hymn of praise because of his suffering. He was convinced that his suffering played an important role in God's redemptive work in the world, and he was convinced that it was worth it. It was a small price to pay to further the gospel of Jesus. The early martyrs believed the same. It seems unlikely that any of us will face the same life and death struggles that Paul did, or the early martyrs for that matter, though there are Christians who suffer and die for their faith throughout the world every day. But I wonder if our everyday pain and adversity might not have the opportunity to participate in the redemptive suffering that Paul talked about. Let me try to explain with a story. I recall the morning of September the 9th, 1982 with vivid clarity. It was the first day of classes for my second year of Bible college in Saskatoon. But that wasn't actually why I remember it so well. Because before classes began that morning, I learned that my 26-year-old brother, who was five years older than I, had just been killed in a logging accident. I was devastated by the news, as you can well imagine, although we fought violently when we were kids. As adults, we began to develop a very good friendship. And that summer in particular, we spent so much quality time together and enjoyed each other's company and became truly, truly good friends. And then he died. Yet I soon realized that my grief paled in comparison to the raging open wound of loss that my parents were experiencing. And when they discovered that Dave had died almost exactly the time they were praying for his protection and safety in their morning devotional time, it precipitated a crisis of faith that took years for them to resolve. As intense as our loss was, it was in some ways just another random, seemingly pointless accident that took another young person's life too early and out of season. It happens every day, all day, all over the world. He didn't die for his faith. He wasn't a martyr in any way. In and of itself, his death bore witness to nothing. Yet in the early days of our grief journey there was another moment vividly etched in my memory. In the course of dealing with all the endless administrative details that accompany a a death, and I know many of you know what that's like, one afternoon we found ourselves in a lawyer's office addressing some of those details. In the middle of our conversation, the lawyer interrupted to ask a question that he didn't know how to finish. He said, "I I don't know if being a minister makes this any easier for you. And his voice trailed off. Before the rest of us could catch up to what was going on, my father immediately realized that the lawyer was trying to figure out how, despite our obvious grief, we were able to go on at all. My dad grabbed a Bible that was conveniently sitting on a bookshelf, and I have no idea why it might have been there, other than perhaps for that moment. And he leafed through it, reading passage after passage, as he explained the story of redemption that gave us hope even though we were hardly aware of it at the time, and strength to go on even though we had no idea it was visible to others. We weren't trying to be especially brave or Christian, but somehow we were different enough to elicit the question. And our loss and grief turned into witness to the redemptive pain and sacrifice of Jesus, as well as the hope of resurrection. Despite their crisis of faith, my parents never quit the ministry and never paused their long-developed spiritual habit of the daily devotional and intercessory prayer. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the habit of intercession was so deeply ingrained into my mother that whenever she prayed before a meal, she had to pray around the world, as as we put it, before we, we got to eat. You can imagine how that went over in a house full of teenagers. I admire it more now than I did then. I never abandoned Bible college. My sisters never abandoned church. We continued with the spiritual habits that had been developed throughout our lives while we processed our grief and the crises of faith it precipitated. The spiritual habit or discipline alluded to in our readings and the appropriate focus of a Thanksgiving Sunday is the habit of gratitude or of thanksgiving. One of the things I've noticed is that adversity often functions in our lives like a mental, emotional, and a spiritual black hole. It will seek to swallow up all the light around it. It will insist that it's the only reality in our lives. It always has been, it always will be. Nothing will ever change. This is permanent. There is nothing but darkness. The only antidote I know to this powerful and destructive force in our lives when we feel like Job is the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving. My eldest niece was exactly one month old the day my brother died, and when my mom first saw her in those early dark days, she rushed over, took my niece from my sister, held her tight, and said, a wee ray of light in this time of darkness. That is as graphic and explicit an image as, of what what I call, what the discipline of thanksgiving is. It's embracing the light, embracing the light in the face of darkness. Now, what do we normally give thanks for in our lives? This is Thanksgiving weekend. Hopefully, you've been thinking about that a little bit. What are you thankful for this morning? I think that normally we're all thankful for the things that make us feel comfortable, safe, or loved, good food, a roof over our heads, clothes to wear, family, and friends that love us and that we can love in return. And that is entirely appropriate and necessary. We need to give thanks for those things daily. And I'm sure, like like me, you often are less regular about that than you could be. However, that is not the focus of our readings, is it? Instead, we see a focus on redemption. Redemption in spite of suffering, in Job's case, and redemption through suffering, in Paul's case. And this may be the single most ne- greatest and most necessary focus for us to keep the black hole of adversity at bay. There is a grand plan of redemption. God does have a glorious plan that is nothing less than the reconciliation and restoration of all of creation. And that plan has been and must be achieved through suffering. Specifically, the suffering of Jesus on the cross as the sinless one took on the inevitable consequences of sin for us so that we don't have to. And as Paul reminds us, we are, quite miraculously, invited to participate in this outrageous plan. All aspects of our lives can be a part of God's redemptive plan, as I've said elsewhere. For the believer, every moment can be pregnant with the possibility Of eternal significance. But in keeping with the New Testament and early church understanding of witness, perhaps the greatest opportunity to participate in God's reconciling and redemptive plan for the world is in the midst of our pain, our adversity. It may be no more than the bulldog's refusal to let go when everyone around tells us we should and we're not sure we can hang on anyway. Or it may be the singing of praises in prison at midnight. Either way, the possibility exists that our suffering might be able to participate in some small way in the redemptive suffering of Jesus. So whether your suffering is merely the loss, grief, pain, and adversity that is common to humanity in a sinful and a broken world, or you suffer for your faith, If you are able to exercise some measure of the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving in the midst of your suffering, the possibility exists that your suffering will participate in will point to the suffering of Jesus. The possibility exists that your suffering can be redemptive, not just for you, but for others as well. And if you recognize that something miraculously redemptive has happened happened in the midst of your suffering, you might be able to say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. And under Paul's guidance, you might be able to grow from some measure of thanksgiving to abounding in thanksgiving regardless of your circumstance. Beloved, do we dare to open ourselves up to the possibilities that might arise when we commit to the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving no matter what we're experiencing or how we're feeling. Because God is waiting to do an even greater work in and among us when we do. Amen.
0: You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.